Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, it's a plethora of experts and topics. Hi, it's Fisher, and I'm going to be talking to one of America's foremost genealogists, Kenyatta Berry. She's written a new book, and she's going to be talking about recent discoveries, African-American DNA, and how you can write your history. Plus, we'll talk to Janet Havorka about charts. Yeah, if you're interested in putting together a chart of your ancestry, she's got a lot of ideas for you, more than you maybe ever imagined. That's this week on Extreme Genes, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover, gather, connect. A presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Very excited to have Kenyatta Berry on the show. And, of course, so many people know her uh, not only from uh, television appearances, but she's also an author now. And we have a lot to talk to her about, including about writing histories and African-Americans and DNA and the recent discovery of the slave ship Clotilda which I'm going to be talking about with uh, David Allen Lambert here in just a few moments. So we got a couple of segments to cover a lot of turf on with Kenyatta today. Very much looking forward to that. Right now, it's time to head out to Boston and talk to David Allen Lambert. He is the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. Boy, David, we have a long list of things to talk about today. Let's start off family history news with several words, which I hope mean something to you. Omaha. Utah, Juno, Gold, and Sword. Yes, the 75th anniversary of D-Day has just occurred. June 6, 1944, when the Allies crossed the Channel. And guess what, Fish? 300-plus did it again. Isn't this great? And these guys are all in their 90s now. And some, oh, of them some were, over 100. Yeah, some yeah. are. Ju- they were just kids, you know, 18 years old, 20 years old, early 20s. And so many of them are taking boats and planes, and they're going to be part of the festivities. And because it is one of those important anniversaries, the 75th, this is probably the last one with a lot of former military members who were part of the invasion itself. It really is kind of sad that we're losing so much of that greatest generation. In fact, my next story goes out to Arizona, a little further away from the beaches of Normandy, where the Navajo Nation has lost another Navajo code talker. William Tully Brown was 96 years old, and sadly, he's one of three in the past month that have passed away. We're losing so many so quick. Well, and they say there's only five Navajo code talkers left at this point. Wow. That's amazing. It's 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 sad, sad statistic. Well, for genealogists, one of the most important primary sources is a birth record. And for many genealogists, you can't get them. And that's the case if you're an adoptee. In fact, New York is dealing with this right now. Yeah, that's right. In fact, their state Senate, they're still in session, just passed the law, but uh, we're still waiting to see what's going to happen with the assembly. That would be what the state house is in many other states. And uh, their session ends on June 19th. So we're going to find out. The governor has agreed that he will sign it. And the good news would be for adoptees, they can finally see their original birth certificate, which is going to reveal a lot of information. It really will, and this is something that has been on the books for over 83 years, this ironclad policy that would not allow people to see them. So it would be a wonderful change for people in their genealogy. Some records are available, though. Going across the pond to Ireland, if you go to the website www.irishgenealogy.ie, they are now pleased to tell you that you can look at the original birth records from 1864 to 1918, marriages 1864 to 1943, and deaths 1878 to 1968 for free. 
Wow. Yes. That's a great yeah. breakthrough. Yeah. You know, Ireland just keeps getting better and better. It's always been so difficult, but not as these days. No, digital age is making it easier, and sometimes you don't even have to cross the pond. Well, one thing that did cross the pond was Blackbeard Ship, and that is now in the news. North Carolina, who claims ownership of the vessel, is now being sued by a production company that filmed and did a narrative of sound and video of the wreck. But the state believes this is a public record and should be available for free. And and they actually used it. And so now this whole case is going to the Supreme Court of the United States of America. So imagine this. Blackbeard ship is in the middle of a lawsuit with the Supreme Court. And to the production company, it's piracy. Yes, that's right. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Another ship with not the same type of cargo, unfortunately, human cargo, was the Clotilde. Now, we talked about that last year, that it was found, but that's not the case. No, they they found it last year, they thought, according to uh, a reporter Mm -hmm. down there. And then when they measured it out, they determined, oh, wait a minute, the size of this particular vessel doesn't match what we know about the Clotilda. So this year, once again, another search was made in the area where they thought it was abandoned and then burned in the 1860s, hiding the fact that it had been used in uh, African slave trade. And as a result of it, they have finally found it, and it has been positively identified. In fact, I'm going to talk to Kenyatta about that coming up in just a little bit. I couldn't think of a better person. She's quite knowledgeable in African-American research and so many other things. Well, that's about all I have from Boston. That was a lot of news this week. All right, David. As always, great to have you, and we'll talk to you again next week. Tickled to death to have my good friend Kenyatta Berry back. And, of course, she is the author of the Family Tree Toolkit. And she's been touring America, giving up her life for this book. And, uh, Kenyatta, I I know you're taking a break right now. Welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yes, I am taking a break. I have been going pretty hard since the beginning of the year on the book tour. How many printings are you in now, by the way? I'm in my third printing, which is great. Wow. It just came out in November, so that's really good. So that at least lets me know that all the hard work is worth it. And at least it's good for the industry because I believe since my book wasn't published by a traditional genealogy publisher, as I use air quotes, this kind of shows at least that if you're looking to write a book, you can go to a publisher outside the genealogy world and still write a book about genealogy. And and you know what? We ought to talk about that in just a few minutes because it is that time of year for gathering stories at family reunions and the like. And uh, I wanted to ask you first, though, about this past week, the discovery of the Clotilda. And uh, I know last year we thought we had it, right? Remember, there was this reporter and he thought that he had discovered the ship, but it turned out it was the the wrong size. And so Mm -hmm. everything kind of blew up. And you thought, well, that's the end of that. And imagine that it hasn't even been a year and they found yeah. this this wreck, and they say, this is the Clotilda, and it's because it had a very unique configuration. They were able to determine that that was the ship. And for people who are not familiar with the Clotilda, can you give a little background on this? Yeah, so the Clotilda, even though slavery was banned in 1808, there was still illegal slave trading. So, I, not to say, excuse me, the slave trade was banned. Right. Um, there were still folks doing it illegally, and Clotilda was the last ship with enslaved Africans that came to the U.S. And most of the descendants of the Clotilda 
they built this town called Africa Town. And there's been books written about the Clotilde and there's articles written about it. But it's great to find something like this. I mean, even when you look at the museum in D.C., they had to look long and hard to bring pieces of what they believed to be a ship that was using the transatlantic slave trade. So the Clotilde, because it's been known and because it was even talked about on Finding Your Roots, well, this is a big kind of piece of history for us, and especially for it to happen this year. Yes. It's, you know, 400 years from the date of when the first enslaved people arrived in the U.S. So I advise everyone to read more about it. I'm just getting up to speed on it as well myself. So it's so huge for our history, and I'm just very excited about it. Yeah, and this was the last slave ship, at least that's yes, what yes. it's it's called. And, and apparently yes. the people who brought in these enslaved Africans in the 1860s actually had the ship scuttled and burned. And so that's mm-hmm. why it was so difficult. But nonetheless, they found what was left of it, and it's going to be really exciting to see what comes of it. And I, I think it's important for all of America to have yeah. that piece of our history made available for people to understand what was going on, the underbelly of this very ugly history in our country. Mm-hmm. And with this, there's just so much information that they know about the ship, yes. right? And they know about the people. And as we've talked about before, the struggle that we have in African-American genealogy of finding our enslaved ancestors or figuring out where they came from. Right. This is just really a wonderful thing. And it gives people hope, I think, in a sense to say that, you know what, we can do this or maybe we, we can find our family. So. Well, and it seems to me the last person alive who came over on the Clotilda was, was around till the 1930s. So he yeah. told stories, he had information, and a lot of the descendants from the Clotilda are still there in Africatown. So this is, uh, this is a very big deal, and I'm very excited to see where it's going to go from here and who winds up with it and, and what they're going to do to uh, display it. Because I'd love to see it, wouldn't you? Oh, absolutely, yes. I would love to see it. All right. So you've written this amazing book for all, not just uh, for African-American research, but for everybody. And I'm very excited to think about this because, you know, here we go. We're going into reunion season again. This is the time where a lot of stories are gathered. Let's talk about some of your thoughts on uh, putting together a family history and getting it published. Yeah, well, I think it's great to kind of think of who you're writing the book for, right? Who's the audience? Yes. Got to start there. Yeah, and is it just family members, or are you telling just one story? So I really think that's the first thing to think of. The second part of it is, like, getting some type of structure, right? The one thing I did is I had these huge post-it notes all over my apartment to help me kind of create an outline, just to kind of figure it out. Because in writing a book, you have to be structured. I would also say, make sure you give yourself a deadline. I think when you're writing family histories, and if you're writing it for your family, then sometimes you can say, oh, wait, I just got to do one more thing. I got to find one more person. I gotta, you know what I mean? So yeah. You keep doing the research, but you never actually produce the product. Well, you know, so and, I and, you- and I will say this about that situation because I've done this <laughs> myself. You know, I finally realized that, you know, publishing now, self-publishing has become so easy. And mm-hmm. so professional looking. I mean, I, I did books back in the 90s, and I'd find these weird hardcovers that, like, clamp onto a pile of, of pages, and you'd have to paste photographs on and photocopy them. And, and, you know, they came out okay for the 90s, but now to do it today and be able to go to a publisher and have them actually bind your books much cheaper than you could even ever do it on your own. It's fantastic. But I wound up doing a volume on my dad, 
and then okay. thought, okay, well, that's about it. And then I had a major breakthrough on another branch, and that became volume two. And then uh, a whole bunch of other stuff came forward. I made that volume three, and then now I'm working wow. on my second addendum to this whole thing. And I think you're absolutely right. But you do have to say at some point, even if you make corrections later, you have got to draw the line and say that's enough. Because also, if a book is too big, nobody's mm-hmm. ever going to read it. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think that's why sometimes I'll say to people, kind of, what's the story you want to tell? What's the story? Like, what's the purpose? You know your audience. What are you trying to do? What's the end result? Because that will help narrow down the focus. Because I even find this even when I'm doing work for clients. You always want to find just one more thing. Yeah. You know, you always <laughs> want to make sure you thoroughly research. But then at some point you have to produce. And writing a book can be very difficult. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's saying a lot since I went to law school. But <laughs> and, you don't wanna, and you don't want to drive yourself batty because you're constantly researching and, and things are all over the place. You want to just really stay focused. But it's very rewarding. Yeah, it it really is. Yeah, I feel that way. I'm very proud of them. And, and, you know, I made them just for my family. But there Mm -hmm. are stories in there that I believe I could expand on and write for a general audience at some point. But I'm not at that stage of my life where I feel I could really sit down. I mean, when I hear what you did, you know, you had to leave your career. You had to sit down and do this. Then you had to go Mm -hmm. tour. And it's not like the money's flowing from day one. You know, no. you, you really have to make a decision whether or not it would be worth your time and uh, whether it's just fulfilling a dream, you know? Yeah, I totally agree. And that's a personal choice. And I did write the book while I was still employed full time, which was insane to think about. But I said, I want this book to be successful. And I kind of knew what I was getting into from a publishing perspective, being a first time writer. It's not like, you know, they're going to say, we're going to do this massive tour for you. You know, a lot of this is me doing it on my own or, you know, just trying to generate that buzz because I knew how much work I put into it. And I knew it's super important for me. And I'm doing what I love. Yeah. So for me, you know, to make that sacrifice, a hard decision, but to make that sacrifice, to explain that to my parents as well. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You're doing what? (laughs) Wait a minute. Uh, You've had a TV show. You went to law school and you're leaving it all and you're going to write a book. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah, I I can hear them. Yeah. Slap your hand. Absolutely. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. But, you know, getting back to what you're talking about as far as just this been reunion season and everything, I think it's really cool to just, you know, go through those stories of the ancestors, pick one or two. And just kind of really try to flesh out their story. Every time I think about, any time I tell the story of someone on my family, because a lot of people ask me about it when I'm on tour, is I pick out, you know, one or two people that have really good, very unique stories. And it becomes easier to, to share those stories, but it also helps me frame up if I want to write about them in the future how I would tell them. Well, you got to think that the stories about people who've overcome something very difficult mm-hmm. are really the ones that, that hit home the most, yes? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, those are the ones that kind of resonate with people or resilience. It's overcoming yep. something. Everyone wants a hero. I've done a couple of lectures on storytelling, and I'm always like, everybody wants a hero in the story. Now, you don't necessarily have to be that hero, but people want to see someone come from some place and kind of rise above it. And it's always good to share that. And every ancestor has a story. When I started out, I was like, oh, my family, there's just farmers from upstate New York. 
they don't have any interesting stories. But I realized as I did my research, they have a lot of interesting stories. So it was really great to see that. And I think sometimes we're doing this research, we get so focused on names, dates, and places. Yeah. <laughs> I just blogged about that myself on the newsletter. It's like, don't get hung up on that. It's the stories. Exactly. I, I love finding a new name and a new place and new dates and filling in and completing it, you know, and, and trying to move back. But, boy, when get me a new story. And that is absolutely the best. Well, I think I think that's great. So you want to narrow it down to your focus. Who's your audience? And that's a great way yeah. to start. And, and, you know, really, it's not much more than that, other than the technical side of it and focusing on it and make sure you get it right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, like you said, you know, you're working on an addendum. You've done things. You know, it's best to get it done. It's not going to be perfect. Nope. I've had, had this conversation with my person, with myself, yep. um, multiple times. But it's just the end result. And my good friend, going back several years now, Kenyatta, it's been really fun to watch your evolution as the TV yes. star and, the, and, and then a lecturer and now an author who's put her life on the line for this book. And I'm glad you did because it's an important book for a lot of people wanting to learn how to go about finding their family. And, of course, one of the tools in that toolkit is DNA. And in the African-American community right now, it's uh, it's a little bit challenging to get people to want to do this for various reasons. I thought we'd talk about this. Kenyatta, why is DNA testing looked upon a little bit differently in the African-American community than in the European descendant community? Well, I think there's a couple things. You know, one, I think, is just as we've seen genetic genealogy be all over the news, right? I think a lot of African-Americans are concerned because we have kind of interesting history, I'll use that word, with law enforcement. So that's what people have said to me, right? When I've done interviews or I've talked to friends, they're like, well, why would I do that, right? They don't want to do it. They may want to know the information, but they're concerned because they see all this stuff in the news. And they're trying to figure out what folks are doing with the DNA data. So I think that's one thing. The other thing I think is really important is economics. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, I'm from Detroit, from the inner city. If you're in the inner city of Detroit, are you going to buy food or buy a DNA test? Right. I mean, it's just like and I think the perception that a lot of African-Americans have, and I've heard this and I try to combat it, is that we can't find our history because of slavery. So there's this thought, well, I can do this DNA test. I don't know if I want to. I don't know what they're doing with my data. But then I can't really find anything about my family anyway. So I think it's a combination of things, hmm. and I think you got to educate people, right? I mean, that's what you know, yeah. it's important for them to understand that's not the case, right? So those are the things. Every DNA test that any family member has taken, I have purchased it for them. I see, yeah. So, I, so my mother wouldn't be like, oh, I'm going to buy an Ancestry or a Family Tree DNA or anybody test unless I did it for her. So that's just been the case. But I think we continue to kind of have some good discoveries like the one we talked about before around slavery and people see that they can find their history, then I think there'll be more of an interest in it. And the databases, it's very difficult for us because when we test, because there's not a lot of African Americans that are testing, we may not get as many matches. Right. right. Yeah. No, totally. That that makes a lot of sense. Although I, I'm certainly aware of, of many African-Americans who have tested, who have made discoveries. 
And yeah. let's talk about some of those, those who have gone forward with the test for the idea that they want to continue. First of all, they want to validate their research, right? I mean, that's what Absolutely. We, we all want to do that. That's really the main purpose uh, from the genealogist standpoint is not just the ethnicity, which is interesting, but it doesn't provide a lot of stories. It, it provides an origin, which is great. But, right. you know, at the end of the day, does your line back to your second, third great grandparent actually show that you have other descendants matching you. And that's how those lines are proven. Now, in African-American lines, there is a limit generally to how far back you can go with that and know who the common ancestor was and if, if you have matches to it. But people are finding those. Yeah. I mean, even in my own family, right, I have tested with multiple companies and, you know, I've found cousins. And there are people that my family is interesting because, my uh, great-grandmother was born in upstate New York, very upstate, closer to Canada than New York City, mm-hmm. and then went to Detroit. But we never had a connection back to upstate New York when she died. So now, because of doing DNA, I have connections to all those cousins that are in the Rochester area. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah. One of my cousins is writing a book about the family, and we've been connecting, and I was able to give her the research and the documentation. Another one of my cousins who's in her 90s, because I do family history when I was there last time, she gave me, like, old photos, you know? So yeah. it's really cool to make that connection and validate that research. That and, I've been you know what I'm hearing years. from you, and I really like this because I talk about this a lot, too. My best experiences in connecting with cousins has been when I've done it personally. Because yes, I, think, I think one of the advantages perhaps you have is that you don't get a lot of matches. So when you find one, it's special and mm-hmm. y- you want to make that personal connection. But I mean, when I think over the history, even before DNA, when I found distant relatives through, you know, writing letters and, and making phone calls mm-hmm. through directory assistance and all that stuff back in the day. Those were people that had photographs and heirlooms and stories. Many of those connections made as much as 30 years ago, I still have. And uh, we still enjoy that tie and we still share new information when stuff comes along. I think for those of us who get a ton of matches in a million different directions, it's just, oh, we got another match. Oh, that's nice. But you miss out on the potential that they have something that you don't have. Maybe one little thing that could really add to your family's story. Absolutely. I mean, one thing, as you're talking about this, I'm getting so excited. (laughs) One of the things that I remember, and because this connection to New York was always something that was there, and I had been there when I was like four, Mm -hmm. right? But one of the things that my cousin said when I went there a couple years ago, she was like, my mother used to keep all these funeral programs. And she said, I thought I was always morbid. And I was like, bring those things out. (laughs) Break those babies out. Yep. (laughs) Give me that pot. (laughs) But it was just funny because who knew if I had never connected to her. And I think also what was great about me making those connections is I was able to explain to them, this is exactly how we're related. Yeah. And I was able to give them the names. And it's my third great grandparents. They were enslaved in Virginia and they moved to upstate New York. And this is how everyone is related. And that was satisfying for me because they didn't know. And now they have an interest. And now they understand certain right. things. And they, and become your, they become your partner in your research, yes. right? I mean, you got, yeah. you got eyes and boots on the ground now in upstate New York for people looking among other relatives that you may not have met who might have something of interest to you. And I bet you that's yeah. happened. 
it definitely has happened. These are the benefits you get out of it, right? Being a yeah. genealogist and doing DNA and validating all of that and those connections that I maybe would have never made otherwise. And things that I value, you know, I have a whole new branch of the family. I've been to Rochester a lot since we made that initial connection, I think it was a couple of years ago. So it's been really, really cool for me. And I encourage people to do DNA. I know people kind of do it when we talked about the estimates. That's the pretty stuff that they like to show, right? Mm-hmm. I, I totally agree. Yeah. And so people see that and they're like, oh, instant gratification. Yeah. But then <laughs> most of the time when people email me, and I get these emails all the time, oh, I've taken a DNA test and I came back with this. Now what? I really try to get them to understand you have to start beginning your genealogy research. Doing your DNA is not doing your genealogy. Right. People often say this as well. That's a really <laughs> good thing to say because I've heard that said before. Oh, yeah, I've done my family history. You did. What did you find out? What did that, that little DNA thingy? You know, it's yeah, like... exactly. <laughs> exactly. But now it's like because they don't have the skills, right? They don't understand the basics in doing genealogy research. Right. They're reaching out to me to help them. And a lot of times in doing research, you don't need to actually hire someone. I always encourage people to start on on their own. And that's one of the reasons that I wrote the book as well, because I just saw this happening so much. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And it is time once again for our Ask Us Anything segment on Extreme Genes, America's Family History Show and ExtremeGenes.com. It is Fisher here and my expert guest this week, my good friend Janet Havorka, great friend of the show. And uh, Janet, welcome. It's great to have you back. Thanks. Glad to be here. Always great to talk to you. Yeah. You know, we've got great questions about charts because we hear about this all the time, you know, when people get into this. And I, the first one that really struck me is, how big will my chart be? And, and I guess in my own mind, I'm thinking, well, how big do you want it to be? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But definitely. I understand the thought that, you know, it would be kind of a standard thing. When you make charts, is there a standard or do you adjust them? Can they be really tiny? Uh, they can be small, but they can also be humongous. Uh, we've done several sets of charts that are over 600 feet. Whoa. Yeah, 30,000 people doesn't plot out in a two-by-two <laughs> chart, right? <laughs> um, no, wait a minute, so, wait a minute, wait a minute. How many? 600 feet long? Yeah, a couple times now we've done some that are just humongous. Because family reunions, when you want to yeah. get everybody on the chart, uh, especially summertime, family reunion season, that's the question we get asked all the time is how big is it going to be? And, and then what's the price? And the price sure. answer is there's seven different kinds of papers and we can figure something out. But the size part is sticky. That's crazy. So, but 600 feet. So you'd have to wrap that around the pavilion at the picnic, you know, <laughs> several yeah. times. But the standard <laughs> wall charts are about what? About three feet by two feet, something like that? Um, if you're going to frame it, it's three feet by two feet. Usually you're smaller, larger. You know, we've done decorative charts that are eight by ten feet, beautiful big wall pieces. But yeah, typically two by three or three by four. The trick is, though, understanding the triangle, and that is the number of people, the size of the paper, and the font size. So right. one of those has to give. If you want a lot of people and a small paper, then the font has to be small. Sure. But if you want a large font, then you've got to either cut down the number of people or have a big paper size. So sure. that's just geometry. Right, yeah. And that's, that's why we do the free consultation. <laughs> so we you mean you can't options. figure that out? All That's crazy. Well, that kind of leads to the second question we got here through our email at askusanything at extremegenes.com. Who and what can you include in a chart? 
Oh, we can include all sorts of things. Pretty much anything that you've found in your research, we can include. We've included documents and stories and, of course, pictures. I love pictures because they captivate me, and I'm not even a member of your family. We love opening up new pictures and, and seeing new things from different families. But you can include military service, physical attributes, character attributes, religious events. Criminal records, you'd probably like that one. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> um, we've included who donated a kidney to who, you know, another really? part of the family. Wow. Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> and um, ethnicity, languages, talents. Some of my favorite charts have been charts that show who pledged to a sorority and who pledged that person, who pledged that person, right? So kind of a genealogy chart of sorority Of friends, sisters. the sorority sisters, yeah. Um, yeah. And we've done some AKC pedigree dogs. We've done some dogs <laughs> in the family. Really? <laughs> so we've done some pedigrees of dogs, but we've also done dogs as part of the family. And of course, blended families, adopted families, step-siblings, all of that kind of stuff. We definitely can Boy. put all of them in. and That's a different kind of chart, though, right? I mean, the blended families, his, hers, and theirs. Yeah, that's actually really, really common. And so that's something we deal with all the time. And, and it's just different ways of putting people together and, and displaying that. Some of my favorite charts, though, of course, always with pictures and then with the stories in it. You know, charts are such a great communication tool to non-genealogists. So you can really put anything on it. Telephone numbers, <laughs> social networking information. You know, with family reunions, those are useful. And uh, Janet, we were just talking about all the crazy charts you've made, including dog pedigrees and sorority houses and 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 <laughs> people with military. I mean, it sounds like you can pretty much make anything, which is great. And you had one afterthought yes. on our previous segment there, which was? Yes, controlling the size of your chart. A left-to-right format is way more condensed than a top-to-bottom format. And people think about charts different ways, but a top-to-bottom format is about two-thirds bigger, usually, than left to right. You know, if you've got a 60-foot chart, a 20-foot chart is better if it can show the same information. Okay, here's another question. Current design trends. What's going on right now with charts and family history? Sure. We've got lots of new things. We research the design trends all the time. want to make sure we're, we're up to date with all of that. And watercolors are beautiful right now. We've got some new fill-in-the-blank charts that have some gorgeous watercolor things. Doing charts for children, starting with a child and maybe something in the nursery or something in the children's playroom is really popular. And then a good, clean Scandinavian-type look. Just clean and crisp, and those are beautiful. DNA ethnicity charts, of course. DNA is always big. And sometimes when somebody doesn't have as much about their own family history to put on a chart, they might want a, a more of an ethnicity chart. Right. And then, of course, color coding is always huge. We color code by place or by generation or by all sorts of things. What do you do with people who, say, were adopted and they found their birth family and now you got basically two sets of lines? Yeah, so you just fit that in. Maybe do a bow tie, do the biological family on one side and the adoptive family on oh. the other. Thanks for joining us for Ask Us Anything, Janet. And, of course, if you have any question on any topic that we might use in the future, just email us at askusanything at extremegenes.com.
I love doing these segments. Thanks for the questions. But of course, hey, that's it for this week. Thanks for joining us on the show. Now, next week, we're going to be talking to our friends at Family Search International about the upcoming Roots Tech London conference. Yeah, there have been some announcements about some speakers and entertainers. It's going to be a lot of fun. So you're going to want to find out about that. That's it for this week. Talk to you again next week. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.